Good morning and uh, very well welcome. I'm Ian Golden. I hope you're all in the right place. I'm going to talk about uh, some of my work. Welcome back to Oxford. I think the majority of you have left, but I do see some in the audience that are yet to come to Oxford. So welcome to you too. I think what uh, the Oxford alumni represent is globalization at its best. You've been here, many of you have gone to other places, uh, you connected with families and with things that are happening around the world. And this is why uh, I believe this is the most wonderful time in human history to be alive, because more of us are able to enjoy the benefits of what I call globalization. And by that I mean integration, openness, and connectivity. It's this force which has allowed us to become educated, travel, and more than ever in history, escape poverty, uh, disease, and all the other things that afflicted humanity for time immemorial. Indeed, it's such a wonderful time that there's no real reason why in this century, over the next 40 years or so, we should not see a world free of poverty and many of the contagious diseases and, and non-contagious diseases that have affected humanity for time immemorial. So I'm very optimistic and anything you hear from me in the next 45 minutes, which sounds mildly pessimistic, should not stop you, I hope, sleeping tonight because this is the best time to be alive. And just while we're sharing this room together, our average life expectancies should improve by at least 15 minutes. <laughs> so that's the pace of progress. That's what's happening. Uh, and uh, for the young ones in the room, you should live to well, well over 100. And you don't have to worry uh, about things I worry about, like Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, and dementia that will be gone by the time you get there. So it's a period when the benefits of globalization are being shared by more people in the world than ever before. And so we've seen over this period of the last 25 years the reduction in the number of people in dire poverty by about 300 million, even though the world's population has increased by about two billion. And these things are related. And I say the last 25 years because I think of this period of hyperglobalization or turbocharged globalization as being the period since the coming down of the Berlin Wall. The coming down of walls everywhere. 65 countries have become democratic over the last 25 years. And it's not only the coming down of physical walls, it's the coming down of ideological walls, of walls that stop the movement of products and services, but most important, the movement of ideas. Because it's ideas, more than anything else, that define evolution of humanity, that define our capability to improve. It's the throwing out of old ideas and the taking on of new ideas that defines progress. And the more rapidly that happens in all dimensions, be they health, or education, or economy, technology, the more rapidly we can escape poverty. And because it's happening to more people more rapidly, we see that this period of the last 25 years 
has been the most rapid period of economic and social progress that the world has ever known. There are two billion more people because vaccinations have spread around the world. Because simple ideas like washing your hands stops preventable diseases. Or complicated ideas like new cures for can cancer have spread around the world. But so too have ideas which are much more fundamental even, like women's rights, like the abolition of child slavery, like the rights of human beings everywhere. So these things have spread, and so we've seen the democratization of Latin America, most of Africa now, and most of Asia. And even those countries which are not democratic, like, for example, China, are fundamentally different to how they were in the 1980s. They've become more open and in integrated, and in many respects, they adopt more of the market and other forces than some countries in the West. So, for example, China's share private sector's share of the Chinese economy is bigger than the private sector's share of the French economy. So this is happening around the world. In the 1980s, only about 20% of the world's population of 5 billion then, so about a billion people, had access to the same information, tools, abilities that we do. And now, about 95% of the world's population at least con could get that access if we made the right policy decisions. There's really only one society that's fundamentally cut off, and that's North Korea. Most other societies have access. Of course, within those societies, there's very big differences, where some, often the elites, have the same sort of access we would have, but the majority of people are disconnected. So I worry about globalization because I believe it is the most progressive force in the history of humanity and because I believe it can provide the answers to many of the deepest and most troubling questions that afflict humanity. So I'm excited about it. I'm an advocate of it. But I also believe it's profoundly destabilizing and has given rise to what I call the butterfly defect. So I've written four books on globalization, and this is the last. There's one more to come, the last that's out. The first was called Globalization for Development, and that is about the policies that countries can adopt in order to be more effective in a global world, mainly the economic policies, the policies on trade, the policies on finance, the policies also on migration, on aid, and crucially, ideas in relation to intellectual property, in relation to other dimensions. <laughs> that worked. Um, <laughs> absolutely. The second book was a book particularly about migration called Exceptional People, how migration shaped our world and will define our future. And I wrote that because in writing Globalization for Development, I became convinced that the policies that we adopt with respect to migrants are perhaps the biggest determinants of our future and the success or failure of nations. But the reason I wrote it, I also think they're the most misunderstood. In other words, can't keep on doing this all the time. 
but I'm sure the technical guy will sort it out. Um, they're the, mis the most misunderstood, and I think they're terribly misunderstood, not least in the UK. So that's exceptional people. The third book, Divided Nations, looks at this question of global governance and asks whether the global system, the UN, the World Bank, other international institutions, is fit for 21st century purpose and comes to a very clear conclusion it's not, but we can't replace it with just more reform, although that's vital. We need to think of new ways of doing things. And the butterfly defect really picks up on some of the themes and some of the more optimistic stories that are in the other books and reflects what I think is the dark side of globalization. And that is that globalization endemically leads to really bad things. And unless we recognize this and are able to manage it, globalization will not be a force for human progress, but actually could be our downfall. It could be the source of the greatest risks that humanity has ever known. And that's why it's vitally important that we understand this. So this is where my talk will begin to get a little bit more disturbing. Why is this the case? When we open our doors, wonderful things come through. Great new ideas and medicines, opportunities, jobs, friendships, prospects. But unfortunately, really terrible stuff comes through as well. Pandemics, financial crises, cyber attacks, terrorist attacks, bad ideas. And the challenge of globalization is how does one become more and more integrated and open and connected and yet not more and more vulnerable to destabilizing systemic risks. And by systemic risks, I mean risks that jump across national borders and that cascade across particular sectors. So, for example, from the finance sector into the real economy and manufacturing and employment, or pandemics into finance, or climate change into agriculture, etc. So the, how do we have the good without the bad and the very ugly is the question that this book deals with and tries to come up with some ideas. Now, I don't believe that these systemic risks can be banished. They can't be closed out because they are endemic in globalization. We cannot be closer and yet not more vulnerable to each other. And we see this in our own lives. As we get closer to people, we become more vulnerable to all the bad things that happen to them. We love them, we care about them, and therefore we get depressed if they're not happy or they're not well. This happens in our own lives. And as you get closer, you get more vulnerable. And we see it in our communities, in our neighborhoods. But now it's happening at the global level. And it's not just about the politics and the emotions and societies. More importantly, as well, it's about the systems. The reason I woke up to this was the financial crisis. The financial crisis is the first systemic risk of the 21st century. It will not be the last. And what I'm hoping is that we can learn the lessons of the financial crisis to ensure that we do not, not only repeat the mistakes of that crisis and have many more financial crises, 
but learn the lessons for things like pandemics, climate change, inequality, and all the other dimensions of globalization. So that's what the book tries to do. The first chapter of the book asks the question about how do you manage complex systems. Now obviously the title of this book is a rift on Lorenz, the famous physicist's butterfly effect, where he ob observed that a hurricane on one side of the world could be caused by the flapping of a butterfly wing at the other side. This chaos theory, the generation in complex systems of unintended consequences. And there's quite a strong literature on complexity and systemic risk in physics. And there are very complex mathematical models associated with that. What I've tried to do is in a much more simplistic way, partly because I'm a much more simplistic brain than Lorentz, but also because I wanted it to be understood, is think about the implications for other systems. And what can we learn? How do we manage growing complexity? Now, my fear is that because we are not, societies fear this. Societies recognize, we all recognize that we have less and less control over our futures. There's more and more things that affect us. It's getting more and more complicated. And it is. This isn't our imagination. What shapes our lives increasingly is determined by events further and further away and more and more interdependent with much greater density. More people, more systems, more interaction. And so this is leading to actually an exp exponential growth in complexity. It's not just a simple linear progression because of the number of systems interacting and how they interact with each other. So we don't trust our politicians anymore when they say to us, vote for us, we will protect your future. The one thing we really want to do when we vote for politicians is vote for people that will keep us alive, secure our futures, but also give us jobs, give us health, give us education, give us prospects. But national politicians, when they say this now, cannot promise anything because they don't control our futures. The future prospects of the UK and any society will be largely shaped by events that happen beyond our borders. And this is more so than ever before. But it's also true that governments have less and less a role to play. They cannot protect us from many things. And we see the reaction of societies to this in putting up, or trying to put up, higher and higher walls. Indeed, I interpret the Scottish referendum as part of this process as well. The reaction against globalization, of integration, of growing complexity and openness, is trying to withdraw, trying to re-establish the walls around our societies and come back to the local that we can control. And we see this in the politics in Europe, in the UK, of increasing extremism. Of people that say, keep out the foreigners, keep, let's have trade protection, let's determine our own national economy, and even a return to some very outmoded economic ideas from the 1950s of industrial protection and all sorts of other things. Not only in the UK, in the US, and of course across Europe. And I understand this as a 
response to feeling out of control. Now, where I profoundly disagree with it is that, unfortunately, when we withdraw, we become even more vulnerable because the forces that shape us are further and further away from our ability to control them. I'll come back to this. Let me just race through some of the key chapters of the book. So the first chapter is on complexity and how the system is evolving, showing using various data that it's changed fundamentally over the last 25 years, and particularly this turning point that I identify of being the early 90s, late 80s, when the walls came down in all different dimensions. But also, interestingly enough, 1990 was, of course, also the year that the Internet was developed. So you moved from only physical connectivity to virtual connectivity as well from the early 1990s. Now, the word complexity might be rather complex. Don't worry about it. The book is written in a way that is meant to be understood. If you can't understand it, send me an email and I will at least apologize. <laughs> the second chapter of the book is about the financial crisis. Now, library shelves have been filled with books on the financial crisis, uh, and there are many very clever people who've written very interesting things about it. I think they're missing a number of rather fundamental points. The first is that this was a crisis in the best system we've got. Finance is by far the best of the global systems. It's at the cutting edge of globalization. It is the crusader in many ways uh, for globalization. And the system which I was part of, I was in Washington in 2006, is I got a very clear mandate, global and national financial stability. The purpose of the Bank of England is financial stability. The purpose of the Federal Reserve is financial stability. The purpose of the IMF is financial stability. This is not a confused system like the UN in many of its parts. This is a very clear system with clear mandates. It also has brilliant people. Many of you might know from your time at Oxford, and indeed many of you might have even worked in these places, that the young professional schemes that go into the IMF or the Bank of England, the Treasury, the Fed, their counterparts around the world, is amongst the most difficult and sought-after jobs. You know, you need a straight first from Oxford to get a job at these places. And then you'll be one of 6,000 people for every job applying. So these are difficult places with smart people. They have a lot of power. They can pull key levers of the economy at the national and global level. They have more data than you can wish for. Anyone that works in finance will know it's a data-intense environment, and these people can ask for and get all the data they want at the national and global level. And it's very joined up. These finance ministers and central bank governors and international civil servants all know each other on first-name terms. They've all got each other's mobile numbers. They all play golf together once a year at Jackson Hole. They all meet five or six or seven times a year in various smart hotels around the world. So this is a small elite of people running a global system with all the skills, data, and power needed. And so you read the testimony of Hank Paulson to the Congressional Committee into the collapse or the pulling of the plug on Lehman Brothers, which sort of precipitated the cascading 
collapse of the financial system. Remember Hank Paulson, for those of you that don't know, had been the, was at the time the Treasury Secretary of the US, but he had been the CEO of Goldman Sachs. And many of us, including myself, had major reservations about the former chief executive of a big bank becoming the finance minister because of the conflicts of interest. Uh, but we thought at least the guy would understand banking. That must be a silver lining. And so you hear his testimony to the Congress, and what he says is, we just did not know what was happening when they let, pulled the plug on Lehman Brothers. So how is it that all these really smart people, 20,000 PhDs, with all this data, with all this power and information, just did not know what was happening in the finance system? How do we understand this? I understand this as a fundamental failure to understand the way that the world has changed structurally and this hyper-complexity and integration. But it was also a number of other things. It was being blinded by the blizzard of data, the inability to drink from the fire hydrant of the information they were receiving. It was a complete failure to understand the technologies. Now, I, I did physics and maths at university, but I couldn't begin to understand the derivatives that were being cooked up by kids 25 years younger than me. Legal, but just very difficult to understand. And anyway, it wasn't my job to try and understand them. They had supervisors that were meant to do that, who also didn't understand. So technological change, which leaped ahead of the mindset of the old, mostly men like me, running the system. So complete disconnect between what was happening in the real world and the supervisory world. National regulations which were simply trying to manage at the local level a system which was hyper-global. You have this famous situation where the UK didn't know when Lehman Brothers overnight took 600 million pounds back home. Just wasn't aware it was even here and that they didn't have jurisdiction over it. A massive conflict of interests with all sorts of conflicted parties in it. But not least, the US, dominant at the IMF in shareholding, vetoing and ignoring the, anything the IMF said about the biggest player in the financial game. So, unequal power relations. The IMF had immense power in Rwanda or anywhere else in the world, small countries. But when it came to the central power, it was powerless. It could not tell, and I tell the story in the book of Bob Rubin, the that previously not even knowing when the IMF was saying something about the US. It was so irrelevant to it, because they were so powerful to ignore it. And then, of course, the big issue of the capture of economics. And this is a very, very troubling question, because we as academics have a responsibility for the failure, and especially economists, who were unable to see the changing structure and who excused the housing bubble and many other things as being rational because of the nature of the way that they, their discipline was evolving. So there's a whole series of different things that I attribute to the financial crisis and then come up with ways to cure it. But I'm not writing the book, I didn't write the book, 
because I wanted to write about financial crises. I'm trying to learn from this how this applies to other areas. And I think there are many, many dimensions to the learning from the financial crisis which apply to others. One is this very unevil power relations between the supervisors and the key actors. And we see that, of course, in climate change, where we can't do anything about US emissions. Again, the biggest actor. There's a story around big data and our inability to discern importance. And in this respect, I think one of the responses of the US government to the financial crisis, which is in the Frank Dodd Act, which is to create a new financial reporting center in the US, is totally inappropriate and will just lead to more black holes of data, as is the 33,000 pages of complex regulations that have been written into the Frank Dodd Act, which will give wonderful jobs to accountants and lawyers, but not stop the next financial crisis. Lots of badly thought out responses. You cannot fight complexity with complexity. You need simple rules and judgment becomes more and more important. It's a very good story about throwing your ball for your dog to catch. And the dog always catches it. But the dog's not done Newtonian physics and doesn't have an equation to do it. It uses judgment. And what we've lost touch with is our ability to act on judgment. So we knew that the bankers' bonuses were crazy. We knew that the housing bubble cannot make sense. How can a cleaner buy a third house? And yet, we don't act. Because we've come up with some crazy theory about how it's all rational. We have to be able to act as societies in ways that, where judgment and intuition, ethics and other things become more important. The third chapter of the book is on business and the way that business has evolved and particularly supply chains. And here I'm particularly concerned about two things. One is the short-termism and growing short-termism of business. The mark-to-market accounting, quarterly reporting and other pressures which are driving out of businesses a lot of the best things, and in particularly driving out in the context of this book, spare capacity and resilience. And this is most clearly articulated in supply chains. We have total fragmentation and the inability of anyone to respond and adjust. Now, what worries me is not just that this applies to a private sector company, because if a private sector company goes bankrupt, that's too bad, but it might not affect my future. I worry about it because it's also being applied equally to the public sector. So, for example, our local hospital up here, the JR, which I rely on heavily if I'm going to be in need, is being effectively corporatized. In other words, it has to reduce its working capital tied up, its assets put aside. It has to be as lean and mean as a private sector company. It has to rely on just-in-time delivery services for its supplies of things like bandages and oxygen bottles and other things. And this is fine. It reduces the amount of money held in stocks and stores, etc., in the hospital. And they also tighter on their nursing staff and on their doctors and on everything else. It's fine when the system is stable. But when there's a shock to the system, like a collapse of a major depot somewhere, or the collapse of a system, it becomes more vulnerable.
So I worry about it particularly in the public sector. And then have various recommendations about it, which are that we need to think much more about what do we want from these institutions, particularly in times of needs, and particularly for vital institutions. The next chapter of the book is on infrastructure. And I look at three examples of infrastructure, energy, transport, and the internet. They're very different. What's happening in transport systems is very clearly shown by the decay in the infrastructure, particularly in the US, but also in Europe, compared to the growth in emerging markets. But also the incredible increase in capacity utilization. So we're operating with a lot of infrastructure at 98, 99, 100% infrastructure use, like Heathrow is at 98% most of the time. And this means that very small shocks, like a snowstorm uh, or some event happening, lead to very big ripples around the economy. And we see this in ports, we see this in many areas. Energy is also absolutely at the threshold, under investment, and especially in spare capacity. But the one that I trouble by most is the internet, because the internet is the orphan of all systems. There's no one really responsible for the internet. And yet, can you imagine your lives without it? Can you imagine not having the internet communication? Maybe some of the more elderly in the room can imagine it, but I imagine young people cannot. <laughs> the internet is everything about our communication systems, not only in our personal lives, but in our businesses, in our economies. The economy would splutter very quickly to a halt without it now. Many, many businesses and many activities no longer have fixed line phones. Totally dependent on internet uh, and mobile communications. And yet the system is anarchic in many ways. It's run by operators who are profit maximizing, very little spare capacity in it, and, most worryingly, it's being challenged all the time. Cybersecurity, cyber aggression, cyber spam, cyber fraud. These are massive issues. Now, I've been very fortunate in writing this book in being director of the Oxford Martin School. Because clearly, although I know something about finance and come from that world, I know nothing about the internet. I also know nothing about pandemics, which I write about. But we have, in the Oxford Martin School, wonderful groups working on these. The Oxford Martin School, for most of you, will be new to Oxford, um, was created in 2005 out of the generosity of James Martin, uh, who's given $150 million to Oxford University to create the school I'm proud to be the director of. And what we're doing is bringing interdisciplinary teams together to work on the biggest challenges of the 21st century. And one of these challenges is the internet and its survival and stability. We're very fortunate to have a wonderful professor, Sadie Kreese, uh, to run it, and we got some money from various parties for this group. But what they are telling me is that this is a highly vulnerable system because no one cares for it effectively. And because it's a classic example of a global system that does not have any, apart from name recognition, any global management. So it's sort of evolved as one of the nervous system structures of globalization, but in an anarchic way. 
And so how this goes forward and whether it goes forward and whether it's stable and whether we'll still have an internet in the future is an open question. Of course, I think it's very important that we do for all sorts of reasons. So how does one manage this and where is it going and what is the optimal responsibility? Now what the internet throws up very interestingly is that this doesn't have to be governments. It doesn't have to be all governments. It has to be a critical mass of actors that really care about it to be able to do something. And I'll come back to this. The next chapter is on pandemics. Now, pandemics are perhaps the most worrying uh, of all the forces in globalization. They are the oldest systemic risk. You might be aware of the idea, and no one really knows if it's true, uh, that a rat coming off a ship into Liverpool Harbour caused the Black Death, which maybe killed half the British population. So that's a sort of early globalization leading to mass health problem. But what's different now is the hyperconnectivity and pace, as well as the new potential for these things to spread. So the swine flu that started in Mexico City was in 160 countries in six weeks. But our pandemic group, run by Professor Angela McLean in the Oxford Martin School, has modeled how these things spread and their relationship to, for example, air traffic, big hubs like Heathrow, JFK and others, and shown that anything can be anywhere in the world now in 48 hours. So a bit like the financial crisis, a bit like cyber attacks that spread everywhere, so too pandemic. And one of those scary things about pandemics is that many of them incubate over many days or even weeks. That means you won't know that it's everywhere until it is everywhere. This is a very, very disturbing problem. And we see in the Ebola, which has over 50% mortality rate, why it's disturbing. We've been extremely lucky that what we've seen recently in SARS, in bird, avian carried flu, and in the swine flu, was not at that sort of level of virility. But it's almost inevitable that it will happen, and the question is, are we prepared? Because there are more of us more densely packed, more connected, and the answer is, and I think it's being demonstrated with Ebola, that the whole system is hopelessly under-resourced. So recognizing that an endemic feature of globalization is contagion, and for those of you that haven't seen the movie Contagion, I recommend it. We showed it here uh, in Oxford with the producers and a panel discussion with our pandemic professors afterwards. And the unanimous conclusion of the pandemic professors was this was scientifically extremely plausible. So uh, it should be a wake-up call to all of us. It should be a wake-up call about the need to do something. And we can do something. The means exist. They just requires an understanding that globalization has a cost. And this cost requires investment, which we need to be aware of. The next chapter of the book is on the environment and ecology. And there are two ways in which globalization is affecting the environment and ecology. The first is what we are doing to it, and the second is what it's going to do to us, or what it's doing to us. And of course, these things are interrelated. 
One of the huge positive factors about globalization is that more people, as I indicated, have escaped poverty. But as people move from about $2,000 to about $15,000 per capita, their demand on the planet increases much more rapidly than their income. And at about $8,000 per capita, 5,000 pounds per capita, people maximize their demands and the pressures on the planet, on food, on water, on land. And they also maximize their externalities. Externalities or spillover effects is what economists term the unintended consequences often of our rational actions. And so we all begin to move, take buses, buy a car, start flying, and our carbon emissions shoot up. We get fridges and washing machines and heaters and air conditioning, microwaves, computers, and our energy shoots up. We move from eating grains to processed food, to processed meat, and our demand for energy and water and land grows almost exponentially. And then over about $25,000, we start easing off. And sometimes we even go backwards. So I eat whole grains again. <laughs> Ride a bicycle. And if it wasn't for my flying, I'd be OK. But that destroys all my other dimensions <laughs> of my carbon footprint. But the problem is particularly acute in this rapid transformation period. And 3.5 billion people are going through this transformation over this period of the next 15 years or so. And about 2 billion have gone through it over the last, and I'll continue to. So we have the biggest impact on the planet in the history of humanity on virtually any dimension you can think about. And this is endemic. Yes, we can tweak it, we can improve it, but there's really no getting away from the fact that that's part in many dimensions of progress. When people get wealthier, they eat more, they travel more, and we do not have the ethical right, or I believe the political power, or economic knowledge to say to people around the world, sorry, the atmosphere is full, the oceans are depleted, you better wait another few thousand years before you develop and we work out how to do this. So this is happening. I don't believe, and this is the subject um, of a book which also came out this year that I edited, that the planet is full. It's not about the planet being full. And that book, uh, which will also be on sale here, makes the arguments in an, through interdisciplinary perspectives from different people. It's about how we live and how we manage this. It's not about a billion Africans who are not doing much harm to the planet. It's about us and the growing middle class. So this is a very, very acute problem. And of course, one of the dimensions is the depletion of the oceans, the sale of a tuna in the Tokyo auction um, in January for a million pounds, rhinoceros horns being worth more than gold. Nature doesn't know its scarcity value. The tuna don't reproduce more when they're worth a million pounds, or the rhino. 
It's what economists call inelastic supply. Nah. It has no response to price. Works on a different dimension. And so you have this challenge of the market determining allocation and the supply being nature. And this is on multiple dimensions. Now the problem of the commons as it's known, or the global commons, is not a new problem. A few hundred yards from here on Port Meadow, this was something worked out 500 years ago. When people got a bit wealthier, started having more goats, other animals on the, on the meadow, and it started collapsing. And so rules and regulations were developed, and the village elders and others curtailed the amount that people could use these pro properties. And of course, they set hours and all the other things. And this happens in the rivers, it happened around here in the Thames, and it happens around the world in villages, where people manage their resources. The problem is that we're in a global village and there are no village elders. The rate of consumption overwhelms the supply and there's a divorce between where it happens and where the consumption is. Oceans, atmosphere, etc. So this is a massive challenge of globalization is how does the world escape poverty, get wealthy and not destroy the planet. But it's not only about the environment, it's other dimensions which spill over into other effects. It's rational for us all as individuals to take antibiotics. It's rational to give antibiotics to our loved ones. But if 7 billion people do that, and even 3 billion people do that, they will no longer be effective, and all of us will have no workable antibiotics. It's about the tension between individual choice and freedom, and the ability, because of our incomes, to exercise these choices the global supply of goods and services, and the global impact of them. And increasingly what we recognize is because the system has become hyper-integrated and connected, that our individual choices more and more affect others. What we do when we have these choices doesn't only shape our lives, it shapes the lives of others and the future of the planet. And so this tension between the evolution of a political system where we believe that the market should let us do things, that democracy and choice is what it's about, and the collective need for collective outcomes, not only at the national but at the global level, is getting more and more acute as we get wealthier and more and more connected. And this is one of the endemic features of globalization. So clearly, not only what we're doing to the planet, and that is dramatic, and in other systems, but also then how it feeds back to us. The development of new bacteria, which are resistant and viruses, but also, of course, increasing floods, climate uncertainty, and all the other implications of resource depletion and spillover pollution. Poor people are always most affected by risk. There's only one risk, actually, which they're not totally more affected by, and that's pandemics, which we know from history has killed the pharaohs, kings and queens, and others. But virtually all other risks are highly differentiated in their impact. And we see this in climate change, 
The most rapid growing place in the US is Phoenix, Arizona. Anyone that's been there knows that it's uh, very hot and has no water. But pump water from further and further, deeper and deeper, turn up the air conditioning higher and higher, and you can live there. It's different if you live in Bangladesh or the Maldives, what your response to climate change is going to be. So income might protect some people, and that's partly why we're seeing a differentiated response. The penultimate chapter of the book is on inequality and social cohesion, the social impacts. I believe, and the book argues, that globalization is leading to greater inequality within societies. There's a separate complicated discussion about whether it's between societies as well. It's also leading to greater inequality between the richest people and the poorest people on the planet. Why is this happening? It's happening because the benefits and the progress associated with globalization are so great that if you're able to surf this wave, if you've got the skills, the attitude, the internet, the geographic location that enables you to benefit, you get wealthier. You escape poverty. And that's what we're seeing in the data. Enormous progress for more people. But if you don't, if you're disconnected for some reason, you're too old to change, or you're in the wrong geography, or you're in the Sahel, or you don't have the literacy, then you're left further and further behind. It's like not being able to get on a rapidly moving train at the station, and it just races away from you, and you're left further and further behind. So giving people around the world the opportunity to benefit from globalization and to see its benefits is crucial. And this isn't only about can you get on at the station, it's make sure you're not thrown off the train as it's moving rapidly. And that's what we see, for example, with the unemployed in southern Europe. The unemployed, 30, 40, 50, 60 percent of some communities, obviously don't like globalization. They say, what has it done for us? It's made us unemployed. And they write, it has. It was the financial crisis and the failure to manage it and various other dimensions of their lives that led people to suffer. And so it's not surprising when you look at the politics that people are saying, this thing has too much risk and not enough upside for me. I'm going to try and stop globalization. I'm going to try and get off this and play a different sort of social game. So dealing with inequality and ensuring that globalization is inclusive is vital. It's also pernicious in the sense that power and wealth leads to greater power and wealth. And particularly in systems like the US where you need $10 million to be a congressperson, where there are 30,000 lobbyists in Washington, where rules are written to reinforce the system. Don't increase taxes, don't increase redistribution, don't invest in public housing and schooling, don't allow housing bubbles to happen so people can't move into cities, and all sorts of other dimensions to this, which reflect unequal power relationships. And we're seeing it increasing in the UK, and we're seeing it in Brussels and elsewhere in Europe too. 
But it's not only within countries, it's across the world that this matters. Why does it matter if there's greater inequality? Do we care about relative poverty or absolute poverty? Well, I mainly care about absolute poverty. How many people in the society are starving or homeless or whatever I care about? I don't really care about how many are driving Ferraris or whatever, unless I think these things are connected. And increasingly, I think they are. But it's also because I care about governments and the ability of governments to make decisions. And there's a growing body of evidence that shows that particularly in democracies, we are becoming more and more unable to make decisions because our societies are feeling less and less cohesive. Social cohesion requires people to believe that they have a common aim and that what's happening with the system will benefit them even if it benefits someone else a little bit more. But I've got to be wanting to move in the same direction. And what we're seeing in the politics of the UK, the US and most European countries is a huge disenchantment with national government, supporting extremist parties, but also lower and lower political turnout. The Scottish referendum was way off the scale with 85%. But if you look at all the other polling data that's come out of Europe and the US, the trends are all down. So people do not believe it's worth their while. Their governments won't shape their future. We don't trust what they say. And then they're pushing for themselves. This isn't a project that we're all part of. And so social cohesion matters, particularly when you're going to make tough decisions, and managing globalization requires tough decisions, not only at the national level, but at the global level. The final chapter of the book is about what to do, sort of summing up a lot of these things. Now, I've got enough scars on my back, and I've spent enough time uh, in UN meetings uh, as a special representative there for a while amongst my sins that I don't know what I did in a previous life to deserve that, but <laughs> to not be pushing for world peace and parliament, global UN parliament. We need radical reform of the global institutions, but we can't wait for it. So part of what came out of this book was the convening of a group of wonderful wise people led by Pascal Lamy, the outgoing chair, of the um, World Trade Organization, but including people like Amartya Sen and Nicholas Stern, who you might know, but Michelle Bachelet, the president of Chile, and various other people. And basically say, what would you do? You've, got, you, you've been around a few blocks. How would you fix this problem? How would you manage globalization? And the, the ideas that come out of that, which I capture in the book, are around coalitions of working groups. Coalitions of people that want things to happen and then can widen their circles of support. Now, coalitions of the willing after Iraq are dangerous concepts. But it is, in a sense, about that. But the crucial difference is about legitimacy, having the affected as well as the affecting as part of an arrangement. On climate change, a dozen countries account for something like 90% of global emissions. Why do we need 202 countries to agree a climate change agreement? It's because we don't trust these 12 to come up with something which is in a collective interest. 
But if Maldives and Bangladesh were also in the room, I would trust them. And you can do this in multiple areas. Most things don't need all actors. Cities can play a big role. Corporates in some areas or foundations can play a big role. And combinations of them. Cities with some countries, with some states in the US could do many things. But some things do require global agreement. And interestingly enough, pandemics is one of them. Because it can start anywhere. It doesn't mean that everyone's got to have the capability. Liberia can't have the capability to stop Ebola. But it does mean when something happens there, we have to be there for them. We have to get there, and it has to be the global SWAT team, the capability to meet that demand. Unless we recognize that we have this collective responsibility, then I fear that globalization will be reversed. That many of the great achievements that we've seen in our lifetimes, except the absolute youngest in the room's lifetimes, but anyone over 25 has seen in their lifetimes, that many of these will be reversed. That we'll see a world which increasingly is dysfunctional, where we're unable to manage the planet and our own futures. We're more and more out of control. And in this, we get greater and greater downward spirals of less political commitment, growing inequality, and growing systemic risk. And this would be a tragedy, because not only has globalization delivered in extraordinary ways, but the best is yet to come. Thank you.